All right, welcome back to another episode of the Jacob Johnston Show. You know, it is getting kind of crazy out there. I mean, all the stores are sold out of ammo, you know, and getting uh, good sources are, you know, uh, food is getting harder. And, you know, you got some people out there trying to say, hey, we told you about the emergency food supplies. And it's like, yeah, this is completely different than anything that we have ever faced. So if you live in an area like Iowa and you're like, hey, you know, Based off of floods and tornadoes, I only need a 30-day food supply. You know, history would have misled you as far as what you need here. If you lived in Florida, you know, they say about three months of emergency food supply. And you know what? That would prove inadequate at this particular point. So, you know, you could have gotten emergency food supplies, but now you're all thinking, crap, you know, it wasn't enough to deal with something like this because we had never thought and planned or prepared for this. Then, you know, you go around and take a look at all the stores and such, and they're all out of ammo, or at least they're out of, you know, handgun ammo. I mean, they still got, I guess, rifle ammo and, you know, uh, such. So if you're buying up ammo right now, it's a lot easier to get it for, you know, rifles and, you know, AR-15s than it is uh, for your standard handgun. And since, you know, some areas are getting crazier than others, guess what? All the people who have exercised their Second Amendment, I'm pretty sure anywhere they go, they're probably carrying. You know, so all those people who decided, oh, I don't need a gun. Yeah, I bet you're freaking out the most right now. You know, now I will put this uh, recommendation out there, which is as part of your emergency kit, you know, uh, when all this passes and gets through and you're thinking about emergency supplies, Yes, uh, you need, of course, you know, three to six months, like every financial ex- uh, expert, you know, states of money, you know, of uh, expenses saved up. You uh, will definitely want, you know, at least three to six months worth of food for every member of your family. And the new advice, the new advice is have an emergency supply of toilet paper. I, I, I think at this particular point in time, you know, it's become evident that toilet paper should become part of your emergency kit. Right? Now, uh, getting into this, um, as time goes on and we're getting more information, we're finding out that, you know, the information uh, that we had initially or some of the comparisons that people were making were not only wholly inadequate, but it seems like people were trying to twist and bend data to suit their own uh, agenda, their own needs. Now, we know the left is completely despicable, but there does appear to be some on the right, you know, who are, you know, more concerned about their own financial interests uh, than public health and public safety. And they've gone through uh, to manipulate the data quite a bit. And in trying to follow them, I initially uh, fell prey to some of the you know, data manipulation, you know, and a lot of that data manipulation was designed to kind of underplay. And now they're coming back and going, yeah, it's serious, but, you know, is it really worth shutting down the entire economy? You know, or what's the point of all of this? And, you know, this is just, you know, too inconvenient. You know, this is going to do more damage than good, you know, and part of that is, you know, maybe they're, you know, their own biases are not, you know, particularly lending them to an honest analysis or they're trying to promote their own financial interests, you know, and 
some of that is given credibility by the fact that there is some uh, communication problems coming from our uh, leadership where, you know, we're not getting all the information that people want and people are now trying to go through and say, well, the lack of information, where is this going? Do you actually have a plan? Are we just doing this and hoping for the best without any real plans? But, you know, what I would say here is based off of what I'm seeing and based off of my own analysis on that particular front, when we hit a time of crisis, there are two things uh, that the government will try and do. One is, of course, manage the crisis and limit the impact. But two, try to manage the panic, right? Try to manage uh, the population. And when I say that is you can't have, you know, all of a sudden 327 million people with half of them armed to the teeth going out, you know, in mass hysteria, panicking, you know, and leading to a complete societal breakdown. So some of that, yes, they may not be giving us the full extent of just how bad this really is in order to try and control and manage the panic. You know, so uh, there is that. And, you know, there's always this weird, you know, or uncomfortable line between, you know, uh, providing enough adequate information and then trying to avoid mass hysteria and panic. And this is where some people are able to take advantage of what's going on in order to spin a political narrative. So let's go ahead here and take a look at some of the statistical fallacies uh, that are being promoted uh, in order to fit an agenda. And like I said, some of these, if you go back in the previous episodes, I was uh, kind of guilty of, you know, thinking about it in these terms as well. You know, but as I'm looking through researching and trying to gather more information on this new virus, you know, as everything is changing, you know, I reserve the right to let my opinions evolve, you know, over, you know, the course of all of this, as far as whether we're doing too much, not going far enough and all of that. So the first fallacy is to compare this to the flu, you know, in total numbers. So, you know, you will hear this where, you know, the flu infects 35 million people and it hospitalizes 500,000 people and kills 40,000 people. We don't react this way to that. You know, we don't shut everything down. We don't quarantine everybody. Okay, here's why there is a problem with that. They're comparing an entire year's worth of information on the flu to less than three months worth of information on the coronavirus you know, COVID-19. You can't compare total annual numbers for one virus to less than three months worth of total number to another virus, right? It's apples and oranges uh, comparison here, you know, because we don't actually know the full extent of the coronavirus, the threat and the danger, and the danger level is continuing to rise. So going through and making that comparison is wholly inaccurate, right? Uh, completely and totally wrong. Now, with what little data we do have from the past three months is that the coronavirus is highly infectious, right? And it spreads like wildfire. Think about this. This broke out maybe, you know, uh, you know, uh, back in November. You know, some people put it sooner, some people put it later, but let's say November. And look how it has spread completely worldwide. Another thing, you know, people are going, well, you know, there is a lack of testing here. So 
We're only going by confirmed cases to take a look at the death rates. We're not going through and, you know, uh, adequately seeing how many people got the coronavirus, you know, had mild symptoms, recovered, and, you know, no big deal. And so the, uh, you know, so the death statistics, you know, they're wildly inflated because of the lack of testing, you know, because we're only calculating based off of confirmed cases. Okay. But the counterfactual is also correct here. Because of the lack of testing, we don't know how many people that died after becoming ill was the result of the coronavirus. So, you know, going through and trying to speculate about the data we don't have, how many people got it and recovered that we don't know about because of the lack of testing, and how many people got it and died, but we they're not included in the statistics because of the lack of testing, you can go back and forth. And guess what? We cannot make decisions and prepare our responses based off of speculating about the data we don't have. We can only go through and try and assess what response we should be giving to this based off of the data that we do have. And yes, the number of confirmed cases are rising, you know, and it's hard to determine whether or not that's because of the continuous spread of the virus or because of the increase in testing so that we can see, you know, who is all truly infected. But, you know, in any event, the number of confirmed cases are rising, right? So what does this data show us here from what we can confirm as those who are sick with the coronavirus and the death rate? And that is, as testing expands and we're able to confirm the number of infected, we're finding out that the death rate is increasing, right? The death rate is increasing. So uh, we see here, uh, you know, let's take the United States and then let's take it globally, right? Because this is all the information that we actually have here, you know, is from the cases we can confirm. All right, so we see here in state to state, the death rates, you know, uh, tend to vary uh, significantly with the highest death rates in uh, Washington, California, and New York. But those are also the places in which we have the most confirmed cases. So then we take a look at other places like, you know, Iowa, Kansas, and the places that don't have all that many confirmed cases. And what do we see? The higher the amount of people infected, the higher the death rate. And this makes sense because, you know, the more people that are infected and needing medical care, the more it taxes the medical capacity of the area and the less effective the medical treatment, you know, per person can be, the less attention that you can provide. So as the infection spreads and more people are flooding to the hospitals, the less care each person gets and the higher the death rate. Whereas we see in areas where, you know, there's not very many confirmed cases, we see that the death rate is much lower because uh, there's more doctors and hospitals per person infected to get the care, right? Now, here right now, the death rate across the country on average is about 1.28%. And that's at the time of you know, of this recording, right? Now, as more data and all that rolls in, that statistic is naturally going to change. So it's at 1.28%, you 
you know, on average. Now, some people are going, well, see, that's not really all that bad because that means, you know, we're shutting down the economy for something that 98 point, you know, whatever percent, you know, is fine. Now, trying to make that argument is completely dishonest. Here's why. You know, they're going through and they're being lulled into a false sense of security because of the effectiveness of the measures that we took early, right? Because uh, we, you know, restricted travel uh, early. We started getting the task force early. We started getting on top of this early, you know. So our initial early response, you know, that has been effective and, you know, trying to keep down the death rates and all that, um, has, you know, created a low death rate at this particular time. So people are getting a false sense of security, right? But they're not taking a look at, well, what's the risk if, you know, uh, our medical capacity gets overwhelmed or uh, this continues to spread, you know, and it's because of that false sense of security of, oh, 99% of us will be fine that people went out on spring break, you know, a lot of the youth rather than, you know, following the whole sit on your ass for 15 days and binge watch Netflix. You know, instead of doing that, they went out, they partied at spring break, and we're finding out that the people that were out on spring break are coming back testing positive for the coronavirus. It's like, geez, you genius. You know, there was a meme going around that says all you have to do to save humanity is sit on the couch and watch TV for 15 days. Don't fuck this up. And people immediately took that as a challenge of finding ways to try and fuck that up. There's another meme, you know, going out there, you know, that shows before quarantine, right? Everyone is just at home on their couch, on the phone, computer, and watching TV. Quarantine announced. Finally, everyone wants to get outside. I mean, are we a society that is such that, you know, we're so rebellious that we're intent on doing the exact opposite of what the government tells us to do. Now, yes, I get it. You know, there are limitations on government, but we are facing an actual crisis here. You know, previous generations were told, you know, uh, to help out and, you know, they rose to the occasion. They enlisted in the military for World War One, World War Two. You know, people went to the factories, you know, women, you know, were getting jobs, many of them for the first time. You know, as women working was not a very common thing, you know, uh, during World War One and World War Two, and everyone chipped in. You know, here, how everyone could help was to do nothing but stay home. And apparently, some of you have gotten uh, in a pretty bad situation where you picked your partner so bad that the idea of staying at home with your spouse is a worse prospect than going out, catching a virus, and dying, all right? So, you know, maybe you should analyze your marriage choices here if you feel like, you know, you just couldn't stay home. All right, so anyways, you know, we're going out and we're finding uh, that the spring breakers, yes, they were infected and they spread the infection, you know, far and wide. You know, so we know that uh, this is continuing to spread uh, that at a rate that we haven't really seen before. And so now we go off and, you know, because of that false sense of uh, security, you know, people have made these arguments that don't make sense, right? But now let's take a look at overseas for a moment. What are we seeing? As the number of infections rise, the death rate rises. So I know you've heard about the example of Italy, right? You know, Italy's death rate 
is at about 11%. 11%. Now, people are trying to go, well, you know, they have a significantly older, you know, population. There was all these other health factors involved. You know, that is an extreme example there. Okay. Okay. You know what? I, I can buy that. You know, that Italy is, you know, a bit of an extreme example and everything. Well, what about other countries? Other countries that kind of match us more in, you know, uh, age demographics and technological medical capabilities. All right. So let's take a look at France. France is bordering around 5% death rate. And Britain, Britain's bordering just above 4% death rate. Think about that. 4 and 5% in Britain and France. And this is something that people are not talking about. Of course, again, this is confirmed cases because we can't speculate what the data we don't have would tell us. You know, so if we were to go on and do the math about the severity of why the economy, you know, is being shut down at this moment, you know, if you look at France and UK at about four or five percent, let's translate that to the United States. With as infectious as this has proven to be and as fast and as hard as this has spread, what would the worst case scenario look like? Well, if you do the math here, you know, and kind of you know, take the lower end of what we are seeing at a death rate. Uh, 327 million people, 4%. Oh, yeah, that's over 13 million people that could die from this. All right? 13 million people. And that's if the death rate doesn't rise any further than where it's at. You know, and we see that as as it spreads and as more people are needing medical care, the more people are dying because of the, you know, taxation on medical care in that area. Right. So the death rate could rise, you know, even further, but let's say it holds off at 4%. Well, that's 13 million people. Right. You understand how large that is. You understand how devastating that would be. On the flip side, you see in Germany, the death rate is just under half a percent. And so half a percent would just be, you know, around a million people, which we lose that on an annual basis uh, regularly. But the problem with Germany and using that statistic is there's not that many cases in Germany, at least not that many uh, confirmed cases. So, you know, we see that, you know, the number of medical staff and medical resources per person is quite high at the moment because of the lack of cases. Now, the next argument that people will make, and this has been especially true since that because people didn't listen about the 15 days to slow the spread, that we are now taking a look at even longer where this could last, you know, for a couple of months now, is that, hey, you know, what's the point of all of this? You know, because we talk about flattening the curve and we understand about flattening the curve. Here's the dotted line that shows our medical capacity. Here's, you know, the curve, you know, showing that it goes way beyond our medical capacity if we do nothing. But if we slow it down, we'll go ahead and keep it under our medical capacity so that we can treat everybody and it flattens off. But what if, you know, after we do this whole shut down the economy for a while and then once we start releasing people, the infection spreads again and then we get that huge spike. And guess what? 
Now we have exceeded our medical capacity. We didn't really do anything but prolong it. So therefore, why did we add the economic damage and impact to it? Now you hear people making that uh, particular argument. And part of how they're able to get away with that argument is because of the way in which government may be trying to manage the panic. They're not being as forthcoming with all the information. And so what this whole slow the spread uh, is designed to do at this particular point is twofold. One, keep the current cases under our medical capacity so that we can treat people and save as most lives possible. But two, increase our medical capacity. Now, increasing our medical capacity is not something that's going to be able to be done overnight. See, it turns out when you have all your manufacturing or most of your manufacturing overseas, especially in the country in which the outbreak happened, um, it leaves your supply chain, you know, kind of strained a little bit too long and it keeps it, you know, hard to react fast, especially when that country is now trying to hold the, you know, equipment as hostage saying, Hey, you better stop reminding people that this outbreak, you know, happened, you know, in China or, Hey, you better stop pointing out that, you know, China was, you know, and their failures, you know, uh, went off and caused a plague upon the world. Hey, you better stop reminding people that, you know, if we would have reacted sooner to containment rather than cover up, we could have stopped 96% of what's going on. You know, so if you don't stop doing that and if you don't give us a free pass on everything, guess what? We're going to hold up your medical equipment because you manufacture all that stuff over here in China. Yes. So we're seeing here, you know, uh, places are low on hand sanitizer. Well, where do you think the hand sanitizer is made? In China. And since the outbreak started there, Guess where most of the materials uh, in the supply chain at the time uh, were being uh, manufactured uh, to hand sanitizers and used? Well, yeah, China. So we need to restock up on the hand sanitizers, right? But when we go off and we take a look at things like, well, we're not seeing an increase in masks, medical masks. Well, where do you think that stuff is manufactured? Over in China. You know, and beyond them threatening to hold that stuff hostage, guess what? It takes time to not only ramp up the manufacturing, but to get that stuff shipped all the way across the world to us. Same thing with ventilators. And so part of the, uh, the slow of the spread and, you know, the increasing of our medical capacity is not only because of the length of the supply chain, which was fine before a pandemic, but now we're finding out is leaving us very vulnerable. And then we take a look at how much manufacturing inside the United States, the whole made in the U.S., you know, has virtually disappeared. We're finding that our own manufacturing capabilities to respond to such a thing is severely lacking. And so if we were to ramp up, you know, manufacturing here in the United States, guess what? It takes time to refit and retool our manufacturing facilities. Yes, it turns out that the equipment that is perfectly suited to manufacturing uh, cars, for instance, from our auto industry, uh, is completely different than the equipment that would be needed to manufacture ventilators and hospital masks. 
right? So when we talk about increasing our medical capacity, I mean, are we really going to be doing that? Or is all of this for nothing because our medical capacity isn't increasing because we don't see an increase in ICU beds and medical masks and all that? Well, guess what? We're trying to buy time to do that, you know, because it takes refitting manufacturing facilities to for the equipment needed to actually create ICU beds, to create ventilators, to create these masks that are generally created overseas with a long supply chain. So, you know, it's not just, hey, we'll take 15 days, we'll pump these uh, beds and ventilators out, and then everything will be fine. No, it's, hey, we need to slow the spread so that we can refit our manufacturing facilities, ramp up manufacturing, and then be able to get these equipment. So it takes time. And so what we are trying to do here is buy time to allow that to happen. Because as we see, stated here, when you take a look at Britain and France, you know, if the death rate goes up to 4%, right? That's 13 million people. And when arguing about the economy, when there's a potential of 13 million lives on the line, you know, when we come back and we look at this and we take a look at this uh, from the prospect of the history books and we're talking about this, you know, to our children or even in old age, you know, talking about this uh, to our grandchildren, like, you know, uh, World War II veterans, you know, uh, did, uh, you know, for us in telling stories. Do we want to say, yeah, you know, we knew that there was about 13 million lives on the line, but, you know, we thought the economy and economics and profits were more important. So we just decided, you know, we weren't going to take much action, you know, and based off of what we had, we decided, you know, let's just go out there, let the chips fall where they may. Or are you going to say that, hey, yes, it was a bit of a hardship. And so, you know, we all, you know, took time, we made sacrifices and we cut you know, uh, the potential of 13 million deaths down in half or down by three quarters, you know, because we were patient and ramped up our medical uh, capabilities, you know, our medical capacity. What story do you want to tell? Now, people are talking about how long it's going to take to recover from the economy and saying, you know, we're creating more damage. No, you're not paying attention to the full scale of what's going on. Look at all of the red tape, federal regulations, and all of that that are being cut, which means when all of this is over, the environment for you know business and uh, the economy is better than what it was beforehand because we eliminated all this you know bureaucratic nonsense. Let me give you an example here, you know. Hand sanitizers, right? We hear about that. Did you know there was a federal regulation that barred people who make, uh, and companies that make spirits, you know, your wines and, uh, distilleries, you know, and all that. There was a regulation that barred them from making hand sanitizer. So if you're going, well, you know, we don't see an increase in hand sanitizers. Yes, because we didn't, uh, probably most people didn't realize that there was a federal regulation banning that. And so we came across that and go, what the hell is this? And so you have to toss out that regulation and then they have to get the equipment uh, needed uh, in order to make hand sanitizers and start producing and pumping out hand sanitizers. 
I mean, that does take a little bit of time here, people. You know, but we're seeing how, you know, all these regulations and all that that were really bogging down and hindering the response are being tossed out the door. And during all this crisis, there's a whole bunch of regulations and red tape being tossed out the door, gone, goodbye, no longer going to be a problem, which is going to allow businesses to come back stronger and faster without that bureaucratic hassle and mess and being able to do so cheaper than what they did before. So, you know, the economy does have the great potential to be able to come back stronger than what it was before the crisis because of all of that, right? Because of all of that. So again, it's what's the story, you know, that we were able to make the personal sacrifice of limiting our travels, streaming uh, TV, and saved millions of lives, or, you know, um, we couldn't bother to be inconvenienced, you know, and, you know, so when we were told to be quarantined, we broke our regular habit of binge-watching TVs and scrolling through Facebook on our phones all day and decided we'd finally get out, exercise, and socialize. You know, we just, you know, gave it to the government, let the chips fall where they may, and lost 13 million people in the process. Now, again, that 13 million people, that's based off of the 4% that we're seeing, you know, in uh, France and Britain. You know, right now, it could be a lot less if we can keep our medical capacity uh, above uh, the medical need at the moment so people can get the treatment that they need. You know, that 4% is based off of, you know, what if we start overwhelming the medical system? This is what we're seeing in other countries, right? You got that? Now, there are some good analysis uh, that are going on that's not related to the death rate and the severity of the coronavirus, and that is, how is this going to change? You know, as in, how is this going to change American society and American lifestyle? Well, there have been several things, such as, you know, uh, over the uh, argument of border control and border security, the people that are going to go out there and still trying to advocate for open borders, they're going to be laughed out. They're going to be like, are you kidding me? You know, uh, lack of border security and border enforcement is what allowed this to happen. And lack of screening people as they come in and out of the country is what allowed this to happen. You know, and the more deaths there are, the more uh, people who will go out there and advocate for open borders are going to be laughed out of the room. So the whole uh, conversation about open borders versus border security, you know, that conversation's over. Border security won, right? It won because the risk of what us conservatives were talking about came to fruition here, right? So that is one thing. Another thing, um, we're taking a look now at all of uh, what's going on with you know, businesses closing and a lot of people working from home and seeing how we're able to efficiently run uh, businesses, uh, allowing people to work from home rather than, you know, an office environment and people are adapting and getting that all figured out. And, you know, the infrastructure that is not only in place, but will be continued to build as part of a security plan or a business continuity plan. Uh, I would say that, you know, working from home is going to become a bigger trend among more and more companies. Um, now, there will still be uh, plenty of jobs in which you go into the office, but, you know, jobs that and uh, businesses that will offer positions that allow you to work from home, you know, uh, that is going to be increasing, you know, 
especially allowing you to at least work from home if you come down with a cold or a flu, you know, uh, you know, itself. And so that you can stay uh, productive and all of that. Now that does have some downsides, uh, working from home, you know, not, and maybe not having exact set hours, uh, if you do so, that uh, we, that means that, that we might be working even more. But, you know, the, you know, societal change of seeing how well and how effectively uh, people are able to just, you know, set up, you know, a company issued uh, laptop, you know, at their house or, you know, um, and just work from home, uh, seeing that in play and how well that's working, that's going to change, you know, the conversation and the nature of the work environment, especially as, um, you know, tech companies and other companies, people have really come to hate the cubicles. You know, the cubicle, you know, the person who uh, invented uh, the conv- uh, the cubicle and the modular workstations has come out and apologized to the world, you know, that in his effort to maximize space and efficiency, he has unleashed a curse upon the world of being trapped in a cubicle. I mean, I mean, a lot of people, you know, will hate having to, you know, work in a cubicle. So seeing all this working from home, that's going to change the nature, you know, of how we work and telecommuting and all of that. So that is, you know, a benefit. So there are upsides to what is going on and the things uh, that we are doing to respond to the coronavirus that is showing, you know, uh, how society, you know, can in fact change and in some ways change for the better. So it is great that upsides are being seen and help. I would love uh, to be able to spend more time working from home. And guess what? You know, the homeschooling is going to become more of an option. Heck, even the idea that, you know, the public school system, right, you know, are going to go out, you know, and start saying more and more, kids, you know, if they're sick, they should stay home. Oh, yeah, by the way, we are now setting up, you know, the capabilities so that when kids uh, don't come to school because they're sick, you know, and let's say it's because of the cold, you know, and to prevent the spread of the cold uh, to other kids and stuff, guess what? Maybe now there's going to be more web cameras in the classrooms themselves for when the kids uh, need to take a sick day rather than get all the other kids sick, they can just stay home and attend classes on computer. So, you know, the, you know, uh, learning from home, you know, is something that can change. And other parents and all, uh, and such are going to be taking a look at this situation and the popularity of homeschooling is going to be increasing in which we can filter out all the liberal propaganda and BS out of our education system and get them to the core, you know, um, you know, critical information that they actually need. You know, no more gender theory crap. Let's actually focus on real math, real sciences, real history, you know, that type of thing. So, there's going to be a lot of societal changes. Maybe. That depends if we learn our lesson. There's the other theory that says, you know, our ability to ignore lessons learned is, you know, quite high. Therefore, after all this is over, people and businesses are going to want to keep, you know, tight restraints and controls and force everybody to come back into the office and will not offer, you know, working from home and, you know, there'll be an attempt to go back and, you know, uh, eliminate uh, homeschooling because the left wants to be able to keep tight-knit control over the indoctrination camps. 
Now let's go ahead and take a few moments to get away from the whole coronavirus uh, news because I know, I know, it, it gets to the point where you're sick about hearing it, uh, but the information you know that we need to get out there is important, and combating you know some of the you know spin and our media lies uh, that are going on out there you know, is important because we need to make sure that we get a rational analysis over everything. Now, as I say, I don't claim uh, to have all of the answers here, uh, but I am uh, just trying to get out there and explain that, hey, it takes time to refit manufacturing facilities to manufacture different things, you know, uh, and to ramp that up, you know, the length of the supply chain and why we are delaying or trying to stop uh, the spread. You know, because containment doesn't appear to be an option. We're just trying to slow the spread so that we can ramp up our medical uh, capabilities. And, you know, the whole, you know, trying to clear up the spin on the statistical analysis and going, hey, you know, instead of speculating about the data we don't have, all we can go by is the data we do have. Here's what it appears to be right now. And that could or could not change for the better or worse. Okay. so. Uh, going on here, and you know, so I was going around and trying to scour the internet for stories and news information that has nothing to do with coronavirus. You have no idea how difficult that is these days. I mean, you, you go to every news site and like 99% of it is coronavirus, how coronavirus is affecting the entertainment industry, celebrities, how they're keeping in touch uh, with their fans, with their income now cut off, uh, how, you know, the latest updates and news or how it's affecting this and that and the other thing. So, you know, it, it, it's just hard to find anything that is absolutely non-related uh, to uh, the coronavirus. So I actually had to go back in time a little bit. To take a look at, you know, some of the articles uh, that were coming out uh, before all of this hit, uh, just to be able to find something to talk about, you know, that, that's not coronavirus. And so, uh, this had come out, you know, on March 2nd, which was before everything, you know, hit the fan. And it's from Vice and it's, uh, for the whole transgendered people. I've lived as a fat person in two genders. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You, you've been one gender the, your entire life. You know, you've dressed up. You, you may have, you know, altered your appearance, but your gender has never changed. It was determined at the moment of conception and never changes no matter how much you try and change the way you dress or alter your physical appearances. You know, it, it's one of those things. You must accept me for who I am. Everything about me is fake, though. You know, it's one of those things. So this person goes on uh, to write, you know, I was assigned female at birth. No, you were not assigned a gender. People looked at you at birth and wrote down what gender you were. There is no assignment. You're, you know, there's only two genders, people. And guess what? It's determined by your genetics, by your chromosomes, right? And when you're born, we can tell what gender you are by your genitalia, right? That's easy. It's not assigned. It's just putting down a factual statement about what your gender is. All right. So 
I was assigned female at birth, and despite it never feeling right, I largely lived that assignment for 48 years. I was a daughter, sister, grandmother, niece, lesbian, wife, and mama. All right, so some of that, uh, okay, whatever. Um, most uh, sweetly, uh, mama. When I was 49, I began the process of change. Um, by my 52nd birthday, I was socially, hormonally, and legally a male. Biologically, you were still a female. Right? Biologically, you know, this whole legally I'm a male. Well, legally doesn't actually mean anything biologically. You know? Uh, okay. Uh, a soft, queer, non-binary, trans-masculine human deeply connected to women. So she went from being a, you know, so she was a woman, a lesbian. She altered her appearance and still dated women. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, yeah, I, I don't know why anybody, you know, who is straight would actually, you know, go for someone who, alt, you know, surgically altered their appearance or chemically altered, especially those who still have the their regular genitalia but uh, you know anyways you know um you know deeply connected to women's issues and uh to my feminist outlook on the world which this is kind of one of those interesting things here so they're saying they were assigned uh, a female at birth it never felt right they transitioned to a man but they're still deeply connected to the idea of feminism and women's issues i mean you understand that this is not really sounding you know, uh, too, you know, well, too sane here. You know, my relationship with my body has always been complicated. What's the complication, right? What is the complication? It's your body. It is what it is. Your relationship to your body is that you exist in your body. You know, it houses your mind and everything that you need to live and survive. What relationship are you talking about here? Right, you know, my childhood body had a visceral reaction to dresses, girl toys, the color pink, and other social constructs and behavior expectations. It was perceived as being female. I, you know, basically, I guess the proper term is she's a tomboy, a girl who is interested in, you know, more of activities more associated with boys, but is still a woman, right? So they're trying to redefine everything here and, you know, trying to go off and go with these colorful writings, you know, in order to explain how she has lived as two different genders. But in the end, no, you know, you've only lived as one gender. You lived as a woman your entire life. And as a woman, you went through the, you know, the norms, you know, of what society usually assigns as feminine. uh, And then you decided to dress up and alter your appearance and pretend that you're a man, except for you will never have the experience of a man, right? You know, because they're, first off, we think very differently, right? Our minds are constructed with some slight differences. 
right? Guys, we have this place in our mind we can go to. It's called the empty box where we can sit and stare at something for, you know, long periods of time without a single thought in our head. Women, you can't do that. And no matter how much you alter your uh, appearances, you know, you can change your genitalia, but you won't get the same feeling. You won't actually know what it's like. You don't actually, you know, have any of the experience or, you know, um, the mental development from the perspective or, you know, anything. It, it is impossible for a woman to go through and experience life as a man at truly, just like it's, you know, completely impossible for a man to change his appearance and experience life as a woman. It, it doesn't work that way. You're living in a fantasy world. You're going through and you're just trying to say, you know, it's my truth. No, there is no such thing as my truth. There is the truth, and then there's your opinion or your delusion, right? This whole my truth and, you know, how you feel. How you feel does not affect reality of what the reality is, right? And then here it is, you know, being in a time of, a, you know, global pandemic. Sorry, I still, you know, had to put that in there. And the left is going off and trying to tell us what they think should be done and how they would handle things and how everything would just be so much easier. And yet, if you go back and take a look as, you know, as uh, February 3rd from the same outlet, Vice, they still can't figure out what bathroom to use. You know, would you really want a, a particular group of people that can't even figure out how to use bathroom? Hey, women, you know, women, you know, you use the bathroom labeled woman. Men, you use the bathroom labeled men. If you're confused about your gender, look down. What is your, what's your genitalia? This isn't that complicated. And yet the same people, you know, who go through and tell us they have the answers to everything can't figure out what bathroom to use. Heck, some of them can't even figure out how to get a haircut, right? Because haircut for trans people, there is no such thing as a trans person. You, you can't transition. You can't change your gender, right? You know, so here's the article. Even without bathroom bill, restrooms can be terrifying for trans people. Okay. And you wonder why the government may be trying to manage the panic level with all this outbreak and that maybe some of the information that they have, they're holding back in order to prevent a mass panic. You got people who are terrified about the bathroom and trying to figure out what bathroom to use or terrified about using the bathroom. I mean, the, can you imagine how terrified these people would be if they knew the full extent of the situation going on. So it goes, bathroom bills might have fallen out of favor among Republican lawmakers who want to make trans people's lives as difficult as possible. How is it difficult? I mean, seriously, how, it's not difficult here. You know, but this is part of the whole, we had gone so long without any problems and so long with great prosperity. In relation to what we faced in the past, people were looking for things to complain about. You know, so now, you know, you develop the trans thing, and now bathrooms are so terrifying, so hard, you know, to figure out and all of that. You know, uh, the transphobic legislation, they always make up all these new names, you know. Uh, de jour are bills that would 
ban trans kids' access to puberty blockers. Yes. Apparently, you know, we have this thing where we talk about how we don't want to genetically engineer people. You know, we don't want designer babies and all that, and yet they don't understand how this is basically the same concept. You know, or, hey, you know, we probably shouldn't be taking, you know, all these hormones and trying to change the natural hormone and physiology of somebody at such a young age. You ever think maybe that's what's messing up so many people in society? You ever think that taking, you know, a teenager, you know, or a kid as hormones start flooding their bodies and trying to change and alter them and all that might have some long-term damage? Or in the case of puberty blockers, someone continuing to physically age, but you're blocking them from going through the natural process of puberty uh, as they transition from child to adulthood, and now you're going off putting, trying to delay and stall that process so that they're always going to be behind developmentally. And even when you take them off puberty uh, blockers, that they will never fully develop afterwards. You know, if you have them on there for any, you know, length of time, you have forever hindered their development, right? And and not just physically, but mentally. You're causing mental and brain damage to these kids, putting them on puberty blockers. You know, case in point, Lauren Jackson, a trans woman, another way to say he's a man, you know, uh, from Oregon, who was brutally attacked on August 24th, 2019, after emerging from a state park's women's restroom uh, last Wednesday. Fred uh, Costanza, a cis man who was charged with assault, harassment, disorderly conduct, and a felony hate crime, was convicted of first-degree bias crime last Wednesday, thanks in part to the state's hate crime law which were updated to include gender identity as a protected status, which is completely bogus, you know, but whatever. A month before the incident, the Oregon courts also found him guilty of second-degree assault and harassment. All right, so what is the issue here? We have to try and go through and take a look at the underlining issue. You know, um, witnesses told police that Costanza walked more than 100 yards across the park to assault Jackson, shattering his jaw, of course they say her jaw, and fracturing her skull, which is his skull. You know, so this is a violent crime, and of course, violently attacking someone because they took a shit in the wrong restroom is probably a bit of an overreaction. You know, uh, let's be honest about that. That's probably a bit of an overreaction. You use the wrong toilet, so let me beat the holy hell out of you, okay? So, yes, you know, the attack and the assault was incredibly disproportionate, you know, and out of bounds, you know. A yelling and a lecture probably would have been more sufficient, you know. Prior to the attack, he shouted, you know, epithets at her, according to the interview. Of course, they never say what the epithets are. He just came up, starts yelling something at me, being being a lady, uh, thinking I'm a lady, Jackson said. I just stand there, and I don't say anything. I don't raise my hands, and he just blindsides me 
from uh, the beginning, uh, and the rest uh, was him dragging me around and continuing to punch me, and I'm screaming, someone heard and ran across the park and tackled the guy off of me. Now, again, you know, uh, a lecture and saying, hey, you know, you know, if you're a guy, you should be using the guy's restroom, but, you know, that's where that should have ended, you know, going through and physically assaulting someone because they took the shit in the wrong toilet is uh, too much of an overreaction. But, you know, going on here, you know, because they can't figure out what, you know, a bathroom to use and using the restroom is terrifying, it's thank God these are not the people who are leading the response or trying to keep us safe during this time of national crisis and chaos. You know, so, yeah, there's that. Now, here's uh, one other story uh, that had come out here, you know, back on August 7th of 2019. So you see how far back I have to go to find something to kind of avoid the coronavirus. How Gen Z is dealing with a looming climate apocalypse. Now, Gen Z is after the millennials, and, you know, um, it's turning out that they're being more and more conservative uh, than what millennials were, uh, just because they've seen the results of what liberalism is and how stupid it is. You know, but in any event, you know, they're starting to get, uh, you know, their way uh, through, and they're starting to get, you know, more uh, into their teenage years. You know, so it goes on to read, uh, becoming an adult in a world facing an environmental crisis is terrifying. Now, of course, they try to find only the left-wing versions because we're not facing a climate or environmental crisis. All right? Now, for all of you people on the left, hey, I guess you're probably thanking and praising Chinese because their action and bringing the economy to a halt, I guess, look at all the CO2 emissions we're not emitting. Of course, we were already declining on CO2 emissions, but hey, this probably bought us a few years. So I guess you're going to be able to say, no, 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 it's not 10 years anymore. It's, you know, uh, 15 years, right? You know? So, I mean, this article goes on here and wants to talk about, you know, claiming that there is a climate crisis and, you know, how it's creating anxiety and what they are doing about it and all that. So, you know, uh, technologies that become less uh, reliant on, you know, fossil fuels and is more abundant, you know, and cheaper uh, would be smart. But there's a whole going through and trying to push and indoctrinate people on this whole, you know, climate crisis. Guess what? The climate always changes. There's no climate apocalypse. It constantly swifts back and forth between warmer and colder weather. There are different solar cycles. The Earth's, you know, tilt on its axis change, you know, as it goes through because the Earth doesn't spin in a perfect circle. It wobbles just like it wobbles in its rotation around the sun. You know, uh, there are so many factors that go through, but what we can see is that climate always changes. And, of course, they try to go, well, it's changing faster, but they don't actually know that because, well, there really isn't enough data. What they do in trying to claim the data is, well, we collected all these samples, we ran all of this, that, and here's what it tells us about what the temperature was before. And it's like, well, how did you verify that? How do you know that your data isn't just complete and total bullshit? Right? Because it's not like you can go back and check, you know, uh, your models against what the actual results were. 
And by the way, all your modeling trying to predict the future was completely wrong. But it's all part of this whole, you know, trying to, you know, get off and keep people in a constant state of fear. Now, I did see a good meme out there about the coronavirus, you know, considering how the left has tried to claim, here's how you tackle the climate crisis, and yet it has nothing to do with anything that would be effective at reducing what they claim to be the cause of climate change. You know, but all of their, you know, proposals, you know, end up in increased taxes and increased regulations, which, by the way, you know, take a look at the, you know, climate crisis, all the things that the scientists have predicted and were completely wrong about, you know, uh, from acid rain, uh, the ice age, the polar caps melting, all of that. They were completely wrong 100% of the time. And they've been completely wrong for 120 years since they first started pushing this crap. The only thing that it resulted in is more taxes and more regulations. And so someone was taking a look at, you know, what the left was saying uh, regarding the coronavirus and goes, hey, uh, is is there just a tax I can pay to make coronavirus go away like climate change? Because, yes, as we go through here and we take a look at, you know, the climate change and trying to go off and push this idea of a climate crisis and all of that, it has nothing to do with the climate. None of their proposed solutions have nothing to do with anything that would address the climate. It's all about being able to create hysteria in order to convince people to let the government increase taxes on you, increase regulations, and increase control over you. All right, so uh, that's it uh, for this particular episode. I do appreciate all of you who are tuning in and listening. It's you know been uh, pretty humbling to see, uh, especially during this time, all the new listeners that are flocking to the show. So thank you very much, uh, and I will be back again soon. <laughs>